Ikra with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hello and welcome to the Robots Podcast. My name is Jana and you're listening to the second episode covering the International Conference on Robotics and Automation, ICRA 2016 in Stockholm. In our last episode, we heard our interview Audro talk to four of the conference attendees. Today, we continue our exploration of what was new and exciting at ICRA with another series of four interviews. This time, Audra speaks to representatives from Inilabs, Hebi Robotics, Phoenix Technologies and Consequential Robotics about new camera technology, modular robot construction, motion tracking on the ISS and companion robots. Hi, welcome to Robots Podcast. Hi. Can you introduce yourself? Sure. So my name is Greg Berman. I'm here representing Inilabs. Uh, we produce neuromorphic technologies and on display today we've got the dynamic vision sensor. Can you tell me about how the dynamic vision sensor works? Sure. So a normal camera takes a sequence of frames per second, uh, consistently clocked over that time, and it captures the entire array during each one of those frames. What we do here is on a pretty different paradigm. In the pixel array, each pixel fires as it detects a change in illumination, completely independently of the other pixels. So there's no global clock, there's no concept of a frame. The pixel has a baseline level, which is its current illumination, uh, or si- the previous signal uh, detected. Then as the light level at its uh, detection location changes, it goes up or down, it fires an event. If it goes up past the threshold, it triggers an on event, we call it an on event, and if it goes down below that corresponding threshold, we call it an off event. And what this means is that we capture motion data inherently or motion information inherently in the data stream that we produce from uh, the vision sensor. How would you describe what the image looks like from this camera? So we render it as the stream of uh, on and off events. So on a screen, you'll then get uh, the pixels in, let's say, two different colors, green for on and red for off. As a result... And also because it's the pixels are firing when they detect a change in illumination, what you're essentially going to get is an outline of the objects uh, or uh, anything that's moving in the scene in front of it. So if nothing's moving, it's just completely black. The moment I wave my hand in front of it, you're going to see an outline of my hand in red and green dots. Mm-hmm. So what are some applications to this technology? Well... Uh, Obvious ones are real-time robotics, and a reason for that is the sparse data stream that's provided by the vision sensor requires very little computing to, uh, for the computer to operate on and then provide a reaction time with. So in the case of um, this demonstration that we have here where we want a robot arm to block a ball from getting through, it takes in the, uh, the, the stream of data, which corresponds to the ball moving across the track, uh, As the ball is the only thing that's moving, it easily draws a boundary box around it and determines its trajectory, and that's a very simple geometric computation, so the robot arm is able to react very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. Another application is optical flow, where you're trying to determine movement in the scene, and again, that's inherently captured 
in the data stream because wherever there's movement, there is data, and wherever there isn't movement, or if there's no movement, there's just nothing. Uh, another one is SLAM, so that's uh, a object maneuvering around an environment. Simultaneous localization and mapping. Exactly, yes. which, which means that whatever the, the vision sensor is on is moving. Uh, so whether that's a drone or a uh, ground-based configuration, and you need to be able to distinguish between motion, motion data that's affiliated with the device that's moving and other motion. And so you're able to do that uh, from the data there very computationally efficiently as well. And finally, object uh, tracking and reconstruction. So in order to do the reconstruction, because again, as nothing in the scene would be moving with a static object, you could either move the camera or you could use structured lighting. You change the illumination on the entire scene by flashing a laser over it and then obtaining the edge features of the object in question. Now, which research lab is this out of? So this is from Any Labs, which is a spin-off company from the Institute of Neuroinformatics. The institute is based at Ichel Campus, uh, which is one of the campuses at the University of Zurich. But the institute itself is actually a joint venture between the University of Zurich and ETH Zurich. Thank you. You're welcome. Hi, welcome to Robots Podcast. Hi. Can you introduce yourself? <laughs> I'm Dave Rawlinson from Heavy Robotics in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And can you tell me about your company and the booth you have set up? Yep. So Heavy Robotics is a spin-off from Carnegie Mellon University. And what we're selling is our integrated uh, robotic actuators, basically modular building blocks uh, that serve as a uh, uh, robotic joint. So it packages everything up for a single degree of freedom to basically control positions, velocities, and torques so that you can basically assemble a robot like Legos and get up and running for various research applications. Now, can you describe the system a little yeah. bit? Yeah, so the system basically consists of an actuator. It's radio. I'm holding it in my hand. You can't see it. Uh, but it's basically kind of a flat pancake form factor. has an extremely uh, large and powerful output to it. And basically, we have a small motor on the inside with a gear train that packages everything up so you can just bolt it together and you can make arms, you can make legs. Uh, and the whole system runs off just kind of standard DC power. And then it all runs Ethernet on standard... Uh, you know, standard uh, commercial networking equipment. You can daisy chain them together for easy wiring, easy control, mm -hmm. and then it all just can get controlled from uh, various systems on a, on a standard uh, laptop or even uh, our, uh, Raspberry Pi. Yep, and it's all, it's all rotary it's all, actuation? Like right now it's all rotary uh, degrees, single degrees of freedom, uh, and they're all series elastic actuated, which means there's a spring on the inside that makes it mechanically compliant, which means the arm is uh, capable of force control, safe interaction like uh, kind of the key technology that you're seeing that's at the heart of uh, this trend in collaborative robotics. Mm -hmm. So what kind of sensing do they have on board? Uh, so there's a bunch of sensing related to the motion. So there's uh, encoders that sense the position and velocity as well as the actual torque. We measure torque directly on the output, uh, which is unique for kind of an actuator of this size. What's normal? Uh, so typically uh, you just control the position. Uh, in industrial robots, the paradigm has been position control. So you control the environment very carefully. You know exactly where everything is in terms of an XYZ coordinate. And then you follow those trajectories very precisely, which is why those robots are dangerous. So you have to cage them off because there's no amount of kind of compliance or affordance to the world. And there's generally not a whole lot of sensing to tell when something's out of place. In this case, we have the ability to control the torque, which means you can control the force of the arm. So the example I like to give is if I have this table in front of me, an industrial robot would need to know exactly where the top of the, the table is, down to the millimeter. 
And that's not really how the way a human works. Even if my hand were numb, I could still push on the table, find out where the top is because I'm actually just pushing a force down. And when I hit the table, my positions react to that. So we have that kind of capability built into these any sort of system that you build with these modules. Tell me a bit about the series Elastic Actuation. Yeah, so series Elastic Actuation has been uh, an idea that's been around since the 90s. Um, but the general idea is you take a motor and a gear train, which is normally very stiff, like I talked about, uh, and then in order to enable force control, you put a spring on the output. And controlling forces is generally very difficult. Um, the sensors that revolve strain gauges that are noisy, they're hard to calibrate. Um, but when you put a spring on the output, you're essentially low-passing your actuator. That makes the forces take longer to develop, which means they're easier to respond to. So you can kind of think of series elasticity as making the force control problem a lot easier. It turns it into a position control problem because you can now sense it with uh, encoders, which are now cheap and ubiquitous. Um, and the, the downside is, is that the position control becomes a little bit more difficult. Um, so you can kind of think of the sliding scale between uh, force control being easy if you're nice and you know gumby like elastic, um, and then the stiffer you are, the harder it is to control force, but the easier it is to control position. Can you vary the spring constant at all? Not on the fly, but we have the ability to put different uh, stiffness springs on the insides of these modules. Mm -hmm. And so now you mentioned that you can daisy chain all these modules together. Correct. And this you can get all the force information and communicate how they should rotate mm -hmm. and this kind of thing. Yep. How do you interface this with other systems? Uh, so the interface happens uh, over the communications, over the, the Ethernet protocols, and then... Once it's on a computer, we basically have tools that let you aggregate the modules, synchronize the data. We have APIs for C, C++, um, and then ROS, and then also directly from MATLAB. We're basically trying to meet people where they're at in terms of the tools that they have and kind of build on top of kind of the latest really good starting points for robotics. Thank you. Hi. Hi. Can you introduce yourself? I'm Tony Prescott. I'm uh, the Director of Research for Consequential Robotics, and I'm also the Director of Sheffield Robotics at the University of Sheffield. Mm -hmm. Now, can you tell me what you have at your booth? Yeah, we are here launching uh, a new companion robot called Miro. Uh, it's an animal-like robot that, depending on who you ask, looks like a rabbit or a dog or a cow or a donkey uh, or somebody even said a goat. But it's actually a mixture of all different kinds of uh, mammals, and it's also quite clearly a robot. Yes. So can you describe it in terms of like size and, I guess, actuators? It's about the size of a pet cat, and uh, it has big eyes. It has long ears, which is where the rabbit thing comes from. It has a big nose, which I guess looks a little bit like a cow's nose. That's where that comes from. It's got a round body, and it's got uh, a short rubbery tail, a bit like a puppy tail. And uh, we've designed it to be uh, socially engaging. So uh, it has social expression that you might expect from an animal rather than a person. So that means moving the ears. It means opening and closing the eyes, and the eyes can be half open if he's sleepy or cross, or they can be wide open if he's scared. Uh, and the tail, of course, is a big part of that. So that can wag. Uh, either side to side or up and down and uh, there's also lights in the body which glow depending on his mood or if he's sleeping then they pulse kind of like a heartbeat now who is this designed for we are interested in developing companion companion robots and a companion robot is 
rather like a companion animal. So you, know, you might have a pet dog at home, and uh, if you're blind, you might have a guide dog. And uh, pets and guide dogs are examples of companion animals. Just having a pet improves your quality of life. It uh, gives you a chance of living longer. It means you're less stressed. And obviously, if you're disabled and, or blind and you have a, a companion animal, it might be doing even more for you. So we want to create robots that have this uh, companion uh, ability that we see in animals, but we can provide it. Some of those things we can provide through a robot. So have you gotten feedback from users, and what do they think? We've been here at the ICRA conference all week because we're talking to other robot developers. and Some of them are building companion robots. Some of them are working in other fields of robots to see what they think. And we've also talked to uh, members of the public and uh, uh, older people, people with disability, about what they would like from a companion robot. So we've got a lot of ideas about what the potential applications are. Have you actually given this robot to someone to live with at home so that it serves the purpose of a companion robot? So that we're some way off having a robot that's uh, finished enough that we could leave it in someone's home for a week. So we've uh, built this robot. It has all the sensor modalities. It's got vision, hearing, touch. It's got an ultrasound sense for obstacle detection. It can detect light. And... Uh, uh, we've built it has all the ways of moving. Uh, it can drive around and so on. But to make it something you can just put in your home, it needs a lot more artificial intelligence. So we need to work on it: scene understanding, navigation, uh, social interaction, and that's what we're doing now. We're, we're starting to create the software for those things. I see. So it has to be able to be autonomous for a long period of time. So self-sustaining, like go and charge itself when its batteries are low. Correct. So. Self-charging is important, but I think to have something that's a companion robot for the home, it's more than just autonomous. It needs to actually be socially engaging in an appropriate way. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, so if you have a uh, pet dog, then uh, you know, it'll be doing its own thing, and then every now and again it will get up and it will come over and see how you are and maybe you know, interact with you and you might stroke it, pat its head, and... Uh, that's the way that, that you have a social interaction and you have a, a feeling uh, that you're sharing your life with the animal and through the physical contact, you're probably actually triggering release of uh, happy hormones in your head, like oxytocin. And uh, we want to understand how it is that animals are interacting with people to give them that uh, improved quality of life and see which of those things we can put in a robot. So to do that, we need to give uh, Miro some more social cognition. I mean, an example of that, he needs to be able to know that when he's looking, that he's looking at a person and that he should maybe behave differently to a person than to a table leg. And uh, you know, that requires face recognition. It would be good if he could recognize that he's met you before. And it would be good if he could uh, learn some simple things about you, like your name, or uh, you could learn his name, and uh, you could call him and he could come to you. So those are the kinds of things we're working on which you would expect in a pet dog, and I think we'd like to see for pet robots. Where are you now in terms of social progress? We are, um, uh, with this particular robot, we've built some base-level behaviors, and there's some emotional interaction. So right now, if you tickle behind his ears, then he'll get happy and he wags his tail. 
So that's a fairly reactive response. So uh, we, we're working on other robots that can do things like face recognition. They can also do uh, recognize who you are by your voice, or they can recognize your mood by your tone of voice. And that's the kind of thing we're going to put on Miro in the future so that he could recognize when it's you that's calling him and he can recognize whether you're happy or sad and he could maybe moderate his behavior appropriately. Right now, he has two microphones here and he can use that to say the direction to a sound source. So if he hears your voice, recognizes you, he could come and find you from that signal. So, uh, and then when he gets to you, uh, you know, if you're angry, you can maybe have one behavior to try and uh, you know, cheer you up. Or if you're, you know, if if you sound like you're busy, he maybe would just be there, but not interfere with what you're doing. So, all, all these things are to be developed. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hi. Hi, I'm Xavier from Phoenix Technologies. Uh, we are making 3D motion capture systems. So the system we have here on show is the fastest 3D motion capture system you can buy so far. It works at 10 kilohertz. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is uh, one of the only systems you can uh, use with automatic calibration. So it's an autonomous system. Right? The main feature, actually, what I like to show people is uh, how it works on the space station. Because this is the only system that is being used on the space station. Can you tell me what it looks like? Just describe it. Yes, it's a 3D tracker. So you have basically three eyes. It's a, it's a bar, right, with three eyes. And this is a small computer. So inside that uh, device, we have processors. And it's going to capture targets, markers that you put on the robots or on the human subject, right? Okay. And you line of sight. Now, why why three cameras in a line? Uh, because this way you can triangulate. But so I mean, if you have two cameras, you can do stereo. If you had three and you had one above, then you could use the two epipolar lines created and then find the one point for inferring depth. I'm cu curious why you would have three in a line, because you would get the same epipolar line if you're doing triangulation. Uh, it's because. The, we calibrate these uh, uh, trackers with another machine. This very accurate machine we use. Okay. Machine. It's called a CMM machine, basically, right? And to use this machine, we need to have basically all the trackers in the similar uh, layout, all the eyes at the similar position, so we can compare the different data sets. So we need to have them lined up perfectly. Right within one same tracker bar. Can you give me an intuitive understanding of why that is, that they have to be in the same line? I mean, I would get same proximity and orientation, but I don't get why they have to be in the same line. Because this way we can pre-calibrate the device in factory. Why, but why would you not have it kind of shaped like an L or anything else? No, because uh, this tracker is meant to be, first, it has to be very compact, right? Yes. Initially, when we developed that tracker, it had to fit in very tight spaces. So why not use two? Why it's not, not enough for the Z, for the depth, that will not give you enough accuracy. No? We have a 15 micrometer oh. resolution. You know, we are talking about 0 so, 0.2, 0 0.3 So you're using two cameras and they're on one, or you're using the three cameras, and the way that you infer depth is you take a, you extract the features in all of the cameras, and then you look on an epipolar line, 
which is a line that relates all of the camera's positions. It says that it may be any of these points. And so you're finding similar features, and you do that with two different cameras. And this is increasing the accuracy of your point. And probably you can use this to increase the resolution in terms of depth. Correct? Yes, yes. Okay. Can you tell me a bit about each camera? Yeah, we have a short tracker bar, and we have a long tracker bar, which I don't have here, right? The main difference is that... The baseline between the cameras. the size and yeah. the compactness. So that would change how far you can infer depth. It will in. change the accuracy. The accuracy? Because where you are right is that the but more distance you have between eyes, the, the higher the accuracy you can get. Yes, but it would also allow you to see further and to infer distance, correct? Yes. Not really, because we use the same it's motion a, it's sensors. It's an exponential decay. We use the same motion sensors, right? And the line of sight and the maximum range depends on the sensitivity of the sensors and of the intensity of the LEDs that we need to capture. Hmm. So we are using the same LEDs for all the tracker sizes, and we are using the same motion sensors for all the tracker sizes also. I see. So, so it's just a matter of accuracy, basically. So tell, so you, tell me a bit about how it's used on the space station. Uh, on the space station, what uh, they do is that um, it's a very tight space to work with, right? So basically, they have the robonaut in the space station, and they have one astronaut facing one tracker, and this astronaut has markers on his hands and on his head, right? And then, as long as these markers are being seen by the tracker, he's facing the tracker, and he's moving his head and his hands in real time, he can control the robonaut too, also in real time. Mm-hmm. And just for, I just uh, Robonaut is a humanoid robot on the International right, Space Station. Right. I assume, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah exactly, yes. Uh, it's okay, right now there's a space station. It's correct. So yep. it's for Robonaut so, to infer yeah, depth. So yeah, this is and... a way to uh, telecontrol. Actually, they telecontrol a humanoid robot, which was the first for NASA. You know, they. The first demo uh, took place, I think, uh, last year. Right? So it was the first time for NASA when they uh, did this uh, teleoperation of a humanoid robot in space in real time. So this way they can, they don't have to send somebody out of the space station, right, to fix things. You just have somebody inside the space station, uh, virtually, you know, replicating the same motions, and you have this robot too in real time getting the calibration the to a data and mimicking the motions. Uh, oh yes. Very cool. Now, is it what? What kind of light are we capturing with the cameras? Is it infrared or uh, near infrared? Yes. Near infrared. Near infrared. Yes. And so that requires that you have an emitter for this as well. So you were saying it has to do with the intensity of the LEDs, the yes. near infrared LEDs. Yes, near infrared LEDs, and of course we need to power them up. Uh, and that's just slightly higher wavelength than our visual spectrum. Yes, it's about seven ninety. Mm-hmm. Where ours is four hundred to seven hundred nanometers. Yes. 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 The advantage of uh, near-infrared is that uh, it's lens-sensitive to sunlight mm-hmm. and to artificial lights. So this kind of system can operate under any lighting conditions, like here, you know, in the show, or outdoors, no problem. You don't. So I've used infrared cameras in the sunlight, and the sun will flood whatever uh, I'm looking at. I was using far-infrared, but I, I, uh, I, I don't know. So it's... Sunlight would be a problem, I would it assume. It would be a problem if the sun is shining directly at into the, the tracker eyes, right? As long as you keep the, the, the sun behind the tracker, it's okay. Interesting. Right. So why are you dem- demonstrating this at the conference? Uh, because the motion capture system is one of the most useful tools 
people use here either to telecontrol the robots or to verify the accuracy of their motions. So, for example, you may want to telecontrol your robot, it's control feedback, or you may want, if you are working with a robotic arm or a grasping, right, robotic hands, you need a tool to verify the accuracy and the repeatability of your motions. And for that, you need very good accuracy. And this is where a motion capture system uh, comes into the picture, because you just place markers on your robot hand or whatever, and then you can verify the accuracy of your system. How does this compare to, say, an OptiTrack system, where you set up cameras that are on in other parts of the room, so they're viewing whatever you're tracking at different angles? How does this compare to that? Uh, the main difference is that, as you said, you need multiple cameras in fixed positions, and you cannot move them. And then after you set them up, you need to calibrate the whole system with a wand yes. manually, and then you can't touch anything. And then each for this kind of system, each marker uh, basically is the same for the system as all the other markers that can be seen. With our system, the main difference is that you need one tracker, one tracker only that you can put anywhere, on a table, on the floor, uh, on a tripod. Only one tracker, you can capture a whole room, right? And you can move it because the calibration is made in factory, so this is a unit which is pre-calibrated. You never need to use a wand and to walk all over your capture space to manually calibrate that. And the third point is that each marker has one ID. So you just power up your markers. Are they emitting at different frequencies and then you register uh, it by that? In the very beginning of the sampling sequence, the, the, the tracker will command each marker to light up once, you know, because each marker knows its own ID. So the system will ask, okay, marker one, come on, okay, now off, now marker two, your turn, marker three, and so on and so forth. So the system will always know which marker, which markers are visible. Now, so one of the things that's nice about OptiTrack and having the cameras set up in different spots around the room is that it's robust to occlusion. So like I can turn away from it, and if the marker is not in sight of the camera, the system doesn't freak out because hopefully it will still see it with one, it'll still see the marker. Oh, it's no problem. You can connect two trackers. You can have the same uh, result. So you can ha you can use so one is that, tracker. Is that how you deal with the problem of occlusion? If you want to deal with occlusion, let's say you want to capture 360-degree motions, yes. then you will have to use two trackers, the second tracker facing the first tracker, then you have 360-degree uh, rotation. Uh, yes. Rotations that will it, is it? So if I have, so say I have markers, and I turn away. I only have I only have one system. Yes. I turn away. And then I turned back. And so the marker was occluded for just a second. Uh, now, it did this thing in the beginning where it identified each of the markers. Will it be able to re-identify this It's marker? automatic. It's fully automatic. Yeah, it's fully automatic. Right? When you turn on the markers, they are always visible automatically. And if they are out of range or they disappear, because each marker has one ID, you never have to do anything. But, so are they constantly range. emitting their ID? I'm sorry? Is the marker constantly emitting its ID? Yes. Ah, that was my misunderstanding. Yes. I thought it was doing it yes. when it was... And if Got it. at some time, for example, all the markers disappear, there's when no they come back, it's still fine. Point. As long as they come back, the trucker says, okay, I don't know which one is which one, so wait, I'm going to take half a second, say marker 101, okay, 102, 103, okay, good. I can continue. This happens is half a second or so the system always knows what's going on. You never have to register your markers. You never have to label or identify or use marker patterns, right? Everything is pretty much automatic. Mm -hmm. 
Then with one tracker, back to your question, how what kind of rotations you can capture with only one tracker, we are using our own LEDs here, uh, 180 degree viewing angle for each LED, so dome-shaped, right? We are using six cheap LEDs compared to other people that use one chip, one point of light. So it means that with these LEDs and only one single tracker, you can capture uh, 180 degree rotations. Right. That answers your, your question. So if you want to capture 360 degree rotation, then you just need to uh, position a second tracker facing the first one. Here, here, here you go. Still, you don't need to have 12 or 16 cameras. Right. It's not necessary. Now, I'm curious. How does this compare in terms of price to OptiTrack? Uh, OptiTrack is quite expensive. I cannot comment on their pricing. Uh, we are competitive with Vicon, for example, because oh, yes. OptiTrack is not the leader. You know, nope. Vicon is quite the leader in terms of uh, 2D passive system because they have excellent software and excellent track record right, in terms of... Uh, specifications. Mm -hmm. So it's about uh, similar in price. It's about similar. And then how do you interface with the data that you take from here? Uh, there's different ways. Uh, we can provide plugins uh, for MATLAB, LabVIEW, ROS, or you can stream the data directly to your own application and use uh, C++ APIs. Mm -hmm. Or if you really like to hack into the system, we can provide a low-level control kit so you can bypass the software and the computer all together. You can control the tracker directly. You send commands, you know, down to the middle. That's the no extra layer. This will give you, of course, the best uh, latency, something as close to possible as real time. Thank you. You're welcome. And that's the end of our coverage of ICRA 2016. But if you've not had enough yet, there's more in-depth coverage of ICRA, as well as a wealth of other robot-related news, on our website at robohub.org. And the next podcast episode will air in just two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye! ICRA with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics. <laughs>